Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You would never have guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel, I'm your host, Daniel Downey. I am a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. So I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully as you listen to this episode, you'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's episode is all about the Union of the Crowns in 1603. That's the moment when James VI of Scotland became James I of England and Ireland. Queen Elizabeth I, she died in the early hours of the 29th of March 1603, having resolutely refused to name an heir to marry or attempt to conceive an heir. And it meant that the famed Tudor dynasty came to an end in the hands of a pasty white red-headed leader just like the end of Celtic's dynasty except where Elizabeth refused to be pumped Neil Lennon was quite happy to get pumped every other weekend for two years before her death Elizabeth's secretary of state and closest advisor William Cecil had been in secret correspondence with James and told the Scottish king it would be him who would become the next king of England and Ireland and James the first was a successful monarch who valued peace across his three kingdoms and with Europe. But it wasn't all plain sailing. There was a bit of cultural genocide. There was a failed union, some angry Presbyterians, some scandalous relations with court favourites. And, of course, there was that pesky Guy Fox who was caught in a cellar underneath the House of Lords with 36 barrels of powder, about enough to keep the Tory front bench going for a week. Now listen, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, right, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. I'm not going to lie to you, this is mainly Scottish history mixed in a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. This is the first time you've listened to the podcast. Can I suggest you go back to the start? All of the episodes, they go in chronological order. They all give a bit of background into the episode that follows. They're all named as well. So if you want to if you want to jump in at like Mary Queen of Scots or William Wallace, you can do that. Basically, go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm saying. Now, anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about the Union of the Crowns. There's uh, there's uh, there's the gunpowder treason plot. There's Pocahontas. There's the King James Bible. There's the statutes. I own There's loads of stuff in here. I do hope you enjoy it. And uh, I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy. When Elizabeth died, her ambassador, Sir Robert Carey, galloped to Edinburgh as fast as he possibly could. It took him three days frantically changing horses at every stop. He rode the length of the kingdom, from London to Doncaster, then Doncaster to Widrington in Northumberland, but that's only because it was his only childcare option, do you know what I mean? And then he rode from Widrington in Northumberland onto Edinburgh to check if he was blind or not. Anyone else would have done the same thing in his situation, you know? He arrived at Holyrood on the evening of the 26th of March, battered and bloodied after being thrown from his horse and kicked. He was carried up to the king's bedchamber where he kneeled before James and hailed James as King of England, Scotland, France and Ireland. They were always doing that, just throwing France in there. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that's a tactic of the British monarchy. If you just name a country and say you're the monarch of it over and over again, eventually you just won't notice, you know. Like, is that what they did in the Caribbean? Do these wee countries even know that they're in the Commonwealth? Have they just woken up in Antigua one day with the Queen's head in the back of their money? Like, what the fuck is this? Did, when did we agree to this, you know? 
James was 36 years old when he inherited Elizabeth's throne and he had been king in Scotland for 35 of them. On Sunday the 3rd of April 1603, James attended a morning service at St Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh and after the sermon he gave a moving speech in front of a golden piano where he quoted some Vera Lynn lyrics and told his Scottish subjects that he was taking leave of them. He was moving to London and unlike Kieran Tierney, they actually wished him well in London. James promised he would return to Scotland every three years, but in the event he would only return to Scotland once in 1617. James left behind his pregnant wife Anne and their three young children. The heir to the thrones, Prince Henry, he was being raised in Stirling Castle. Although, to be fair, do you know what I mean? Like, abandoning your wife and children is what we've come to expect of the leader in London nowadays anyway. James's journey south, it was a, triumph- a triumphant procession. Everywhere he stopped, there was huge celebrations and crowds gathered to greet the new king. In Newcastle, James freed most of the city's prisoners. But that's only because if he hadn't have done that, there'd have been hardly anyone there to greet him, you know? William Cecil, he was keen to ingratiate himself with the new king. He met James at York and shortly afterwards, James would make him Earl of Salisbury. James knighted dozens of local worthies in the first four months of his reign. He knighted 906 people. That's more than Elizabeth knighted throughout her entire reign. He knighted 906 people in four months. 905 of them were undeserving. And the other was Andy Murray. London in the summer of 1603 was in the grip of a horrendous outbreak of plague. The city had a population of around 300,000 in 1603 and the plague had claimed 30,000 lives. 10% of London's population were dead. I wonder if there was any kind of, like, 17th century Lawrence Fox types around then, you know, saying that everything should open back up immediately and the plague wasn't real. I don't know. The plague meant that as well as as well received as James had been on his triumphant journey from Edinburgh to London, his coronation at Westminster Abbey on the 25th of July 1603 was a sombre, muted affair. There were no crowds, no pageantry or processions. The plague had stopped everything in Britain, except for the Cheltenham Festival, of course, that went ahead as planned. The muted coronation of the first king of the entire British Isles was symbolic. It marked the end of James's brief honeymoon period with his English subjects. The realisation that James was Scottish would suddenly hit them. The problem with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. The famous words of Edward Longshanks from Braveheart there, but what England would quickly find out is the only thing that's worse than Scotland being full of Scots is when they all decide to come to London. James's goal was to become a universal king. He wanted a full union of the kingdoms, a single country called Magna Britannia, or Great Britain. I wonder if anyone went, well, you know what, there's like tens of thousands dead because of this plague and we've got shitloads of food banks everywhere. Maybe like Great Britain is just a tad self-aggrandizing. I don't know. We might might want to rethink that one. In October 1604, he adopted the title King of Great Britain, France and Ireland. In the first meeting of the English Parliament James attended, he made an eloquent argument for a union of love between the kingdoms. A union of love between two countries that fucking hated each other. So, I mean, more like a marriage, really. 
1606, James approved the creation of the Union flag and he plast- and he had it plastered over every bit of produce in Morrison's and every market in every corner of the Three Kingdoms. But neither the Scottish or English parliaments were ready for a full incorporating union. The English were concerned that James, being a Scottish monarch, might promote the needs of Scotland above England. But they needn't have worried. If James had promoted Scotland's interests in London, he would have been the first and only Scottish leader in London to ever do so. James would go down the tried and tested the tried and tested route of promoting England's needs above Scotland's, the the modus operandi of the Scottish Conservative Party. The Scots were apprehensive and concerned about losing their national identity. A Scottish feudal lawyer of the time, Sir Thomas Craig of Rickerton, recognised Scotland's predicament in his 1605 tract. Craig had gone to London with James and was a commissioner for the projected union of the kingdoms. And in his tract, Sir Thomas warned that in any union between Scotland and England, Scotland would be the loser. The greater would always inevitably attract the lesser. Future monarchs would be English, would live and be raised in England. London would be the capital of the entire British Isles and it's where Scotland's brightest brains and best football players would gravitate towards. Craig said that for a union between Scotland and England to work, it would have to be on an equal footing. Scots' law and religion must be preserved and each parliament retain its status and authority and, you know, not be undermined by, say, an internal market bill that breaks international law and undermines devolution. Past grievances needed to be aired between the two countries and the written annals revised and a new history of Britain written, a made-up history of Britain to suit the Union. It came just a, a few centuries too soon for Neil Oliver. James's proposal for a united Britain was rejected by the English Parliament in 1607 and it would be another century before a full incorporating union between the two countries would take place. James's vision of union was nothing like Sir Thomas Craig's vision. James had no intention of maintaining Scottish law or religion. He wanted the entire country under one ecclesiastical system and one system of law. He wanted to replace whiskey with pims, Highland dancing with Morris dancing, the proclaimers with Chaz and Dave and don't even think about asking for square sausage. James wanted an English version of Scotland. So Edinburgh, basically. And he reassured those in England that the English kingdom would naturally engulf the smaller, weaker Scottish kingdom. But James had misinterpreted the initial enthusiasm of his ascension in England as support for the Union. In truth, English enthusiasm for James came from a relief that the succession from the last of the Tudor dynasty had been achieved without any violence at all. They were happy as well to have a male monarch again. After 50 years of rule under Mary and Elizabeth Tudor, and the uncertainty that came with Elizabeth refusing to try for or to name an heir, James was a secure monarch with a family supremely confident in his abilities, intellectual and with a proven track record in Scotland. For a country tired after years of war with Spain, there was a lot for the English to be thankful for in James, but James was still Scottish, and his English subjects had been schooled for centuries to feel hatred and contempt for their irrepressible northern neighbours. It would be like it would be like if Sir Alex Ferguson became manager of the England football team. Yes, he's a brilliant leader. Yes, he's the best that England have seen for generations, but still Managing England would just 
be weird. It just wouldn't feel right. And this was something that James didn't seem to fully appreciate. When he inherited Elizabeth's throne, he imagined that incorporating union with England would surely, inevitably, follow. One of the consequences of a Scottish king in London was an influx of Scots into London. Thousands followed their king hopeful of petitioning the king for jobs in England and thousands of Scottish followers of the monarch suddenly descending on an English city. That can cause problems, you know, as Rangers fans proved when they went to Manchester. These hungry Scots on the make were not popular amongst the locals. The Scottish influx into London became so heavy that James found it burdensome. In 1614, he appointed Sir William Alexander as Master of Requests for Scotland, Head of Immigration, essentially. In 1621, Alexander came up with a scheme for absorbing surplus Scots into western Newfoundland, establishing a new colony called Nova Scotia in modern-day Canada, and thus creating Canadian Scots, the most miserable but polite people on the planet. Despite the fact, right, that this is your monarch and he invited you to come to England, we don't want you here and we would rather you fuck off to the other side of the ocean. I mean, it's just like how the Tories dealt with the Windrush generation, isn't it? Nova Scotia was incorporated into the Kingdom of Scotland but surrendered to the French in 1629. The most famous of these hungry Scots in the take was an Edinburgh man, George Herriot, who rose to considerable prominence after moving to London in 1603. George Herriot, or Jingling Geordie as he was known, he acquired his nickname on account of the fact that his pockets always jingled with coins and he would walk the streets of Edinburgh and hand out coins to the city's poorest children. George Herriot, he was born in Edinburgh in 1563. His father was a goldsmith, a deacon of the trades, and he was a member of parliament. George Herriot married Christian Marjorie Banks in 1586, and after their marriage, George's father set him up in a Luckin booth, which is kind of like a wee shop, next to St Giles Cathedral, where George sold fridge magnets, sticks of rock, 20-pound kilts, and Princess Diana tartan. But it was George Herriot's beautiful, intricate jewellery that attracted most attention. And despite being a commoner, Queen Anne appointed George Herriot as her goldsmith, and in 1601 he was appointed as James VI goldsmith as well. Now this position, that didn't just involve making jewellery for the royal couple or you know, golden pianos for the royalty. A 17th century goldsmith also acted as a personal banker to the king and queen. George Herriot, he would lend the crown money on the security of the jewellery that he was making for them. When James inherited the English throne in 1603, George Herriot, he moved to London shortly afterwards. He knew if he wanted to make it, he'd have to move to London, otherwise he'd be stuck doing a comedy walking tour in Edinburgh, and that would be a disaster for such an obvious, but as of yet wholly undiscovered talent like himself. The journey to London was a tragic one for George Herriot. En route, both of his sons died, and then in 1608 his wife died as well. George Herriot, he returned to Edinburgh in 1608, and he married the 16-year-old Alice Primrose. He moved back to London the following year and his business steadily expanded, allowing him to buy property in London, Edinburgh and Dublin, the triumvirate of wanky cities. 
When George Heriot died in 1624, he had no legitimate heirs. He left his London properties to his two illegitimate daughters he had from liaisons in London after the death of his first wife. Listen, he was upset. His wife had just died, so he put it about a bit when he was in London, alright? Eventually, he did the right thing. He came home and settled down with a 16-year-old. Listen, at least he didn't cheat on his wife while she was undergoing chemotherapy, moved him in the last in her 20s, and disowned all of his previous children. All right, let's keep it in context, yeah. The rest of George Heriot's fortune was left for a hospital to be built his name in Edinburgh. The George Heriot's Hospital was built to nurse and educate the city's orphan children. Construction began on the famous building in 1628 and was completed in 1659 for Hundreds of years, the sons and later daughters of widows were educated for free at the inverted commas hospital. In 1886, the hospital became an independent private school. It was very much in keeping with the wishes of a renowned and celebrated philanthropist, you know, who wanted to feed and educate the city's most unfortunate children. I'm sure he's much happier the building is being used to serve the kids of the richest families in the city. I mean, better that than some bloody orphans. Am I right, George? In 1606, James chartered the Virginia Company of London to establish the first permanent colony in the New World, Jamestown in Virginia. Three ships, the Susan Constant, the Godspeed and the Discovery, left from England in December 1606 and arrived in Virginia in late April 1607. Jamestown was established in James's honour 13 years before the pilgrims of the Mayflower landed in Massachusetts. And the first leader of the colony was Captain John Smith, who very famously was instrumental in building relationships with the Powhatan Native Americans and most notably struck up a friendship with the daughter of a Powhatan chief, probably one of the most famous Native Americans of all time, Pocahontas. When Smith was injured and returned to England, the colony struggled until the planting of the cash crop tobacco in 1613 by John Rolfe. Tobacco grew in abundance in Virginia and it led to a tobacco boom back in Europe, although James didn't approve. You know, he was more of a bevy merchant and he was Scottish. He would never waste his heroin by smoking it. You know, he was always going to inject intravenously. When John Smith left the colony, war between the colonists and the Native Americans escalated. And to help cool tensions, John Rolfe married Pocahontas and she converted to Christianity, although how much she truly conformed is debated. And Pocahontas, she took the Christian name of Rebecca. Pocahontas was taken to England by the Virginia Company to show members of London's elite a civilised New World savage and to try and drum up support and get more people to travel to the colonies. And Pocahontas, she was treated well in London. She was presented as royalty since the Virginia Company played up the story of her being a Powhatan princess. Pocahontas actually met with the king. She met King James at Whitehall and apparently James was so unimposing she wasn't even aware of who she had met until she was told afterwards. Pocahontas, she set sail back to Virginia and as she was leaving, she took gravely ill. She didn't even make it as far as Kent. She uh, she died in Gravesend in Kent at the tender age of only 21. There's a statue of Pocahontas in St George's Church in Gravesend where she's thought to be buried. James may have been king of the entire British Isles, but there was a significant part of his Scottish kingdom where his authority was all but a name only, the Highlands and Islands. 
For lowland Scots and certainly for Englishmen, Highlanders were uncouth, barely civilised, consisting of clans constantly warring, consumed by feuding and thieving. These people and their Gallic culture were looked down upon by the civilised South and by the King. James saw the shoddy production values of BBC Alaba and looked down his nose at Gallic Scotland. Plus he was gay, you know, so he preferred guys to gales. Anyway, the last Scottish king who could speak Gaelic was James IV, and his rule was over a hundred years before James VI. The classical learning of the Renaissance pushed the Gaelic-speaking fringes of the Scottish kingdom further from recognised, civilised, learned society, and throughout the 16th century, the Highlands was seen increasingly as a problem. James wanted to eradicate this embarrassing Gaelic culture from his from his kingdom. He viewed the Highlands as barbaric, uncivilised and uncouth. And as someone who is from the Highlands, from Dingwall, I have to say that, well, he's, he's got a bit of a point, to be fair, you know. And if he thought that the Highlanders were bad, we were at least a wee bit civilised. Whereas the Islanders, on the other hand, they were complete savages, totally fucking mental. Which as someone who has lived in Stornoway, uh, again, I've got to say, he's, you know, he's, he's got a bit of a point, to be fair. Of his Gaelic-speaking subjects, James wrote, As for the Highlands, I shortly comprehend them into two sorts of people. The one that dwelleth in our mainland, that are barbarous for the main part, and yet mix with some civility. The other that dwelleth in the Isles, they are utterly barbarous without any show of civility. To try and civilise these islanders, James decided on a curious scheme to colonise the island with lowland Scots. In 1597, the Isle of Lewis, home to Clan MacLeod, was leased to a group of lowland entrepreneurs known as the Fife Adventurers. James's colonisation policies were headed up by the Duke of Lennox, Ludovic Stewart, and the Fife Adventurers, they were encouraged to root the barbarous locals out by any means they wished, including slaughter, mutilation, fire raising, and other inconveniences. I mean, how civilised. Lewis was chosen as a colony not just because it was one of the barbarous island communities James detested, but also because it had plentiful resources for raising crops and fishing. It was a beautiful, plentiful island that just happened to be populated by a bunch of fucking mental cases. Like Australia! Basically, the Fife adventurers arrived on the island with a private army of around 800 men. The clan chief of the MacLeods, Roderick MacLeod, he sent his sons Neil and Murdoch to harass the settlers, destroy their camps and slaughter their garrisons. Just, you know, not on a Sunday. The MacLeods were able to force the Fife, adventure, the Fife adventurers off the island relatively easily and by 1599 all of the Fife adventurers had returned to the mainland. There were other attempts at inverted commas civilising the island in 1605 and 1607 but they were equally as unsuccessful. And far from the illiterate pagans James had described, the Lewis population, they were well educated and literate. James considered the islanders backwards purely because they couldn't get Channel 5 through their aerials. Well, that and their silly accents as well. Do you know what I mean? Even Professor Brian Cox would sound a wee bit daft if he talked with a Hebridean accent, you know, just be like, well, today we're talking about event horizons and black holes and the bending of time matter and the nature of whether time exists or it's just a, a construct of gravity. <laughs> I do love that. I do love that Lewis accent, I must say. 
Now, anyway, the Lewis, the Lewis Plantation, what that was, was essentially James trying to take advantage of a situation that the Crown had created over a hundred years previously. During the reign of James IV, he had dissolved the Lordship of the Isles, and in the process, it destabilized, destabilized the islands and the Western Highlands, which made it easier for rival clans to stake claims, which led to war and feuding between them. It's like, it's like when the Americans, right, when they continuously destabilize a country and then swoop in to rescue them. You know, Lewis was like James's Iraq, which I suppose would make the the Free Church the Taliban. James had another crack at cultural genocide in 1609. He lured nine of the most influential clan chiefs to a meeting with the king in Edinburgh. And when the clan chiefs arrived in Edinburgh, James imprisoned them and agreed to release them only if they attended a conference on the Isle of Iona, the spiritual centre of Celtic Christendom. On Iona, the clan chiefs were forced to sign the Statutes of Iona, which prohibited Gallic manners, dress and customs, shutting down Edinburgh's royal mile in the process. I mean, like... Making the chiefs go to the very heart of Gildon to give up their Gallic traditions and mannerisms is pretty dramatic, isn't it? That would be like forcing George Osborne to go to Bolivia to give up his coke habit. Now, the carrying of firearms by clansmen was prohibited. Clansmen uh, were to seek the assistance of the courts and their king over any disputes and not settle them in the ancient Highland tradition. Presbyterian ministers were put in Highland parishes to preach the national religion. Clan chiefs, they were given curbs on how much strong drink they could purchase and their bards, they were banned from writing about past glories or any differences that separated them from other Scots or Britons. And anyone who owned more than 60 cattle, they were required to send their sons to the mainland where they would be taught to speak, read and write in English. What James was trying to do is he was trying to strengthen ties with England to promote the incorporated union he desired and weaken emotional and cultural bonds to Celtic Scotland. It was done mainly by putting Union Jacks in all of the packets of butter and Morrisons. Now, the Statutes of Iona were a bit of a hammer blow to the Gallic language in the Highlands. Like, I, for example, right, I'm from the Highlands, but I was never taught Gallic, only to speak gibberish to Americans. But James's attempt at Gallic cultural genocide, it wasn't successful. Obviously, Highland and Gallic culture survived and are a huge part of our internationally recognised culture. So there you go, James. A fuck you. And a big shout out to all of my fellow Highlanders and Islanders. Unless, of course, you support Inverness, Caledonian Thistle, in, in which case you can get fucked. Where James's Lewis plantations failed, he had more success in Ulster in the north of Ireland. In 1609, James issued an invitation to his Scottish subjects to settle the plantation of Ulster. So there you go, Rangers fans. It's 1609 that's actually the important date, not 1690. I think you are just getting the zero and the nine mixed up. 70 nobles, burgesses, lairds and merchants took up holdings in Northern Ireland. By the end of James's reign, there were over 8,000 Scots settlers in Ulster capable of bearing arms and singing sectarian songs. James said of his Northern Irish population, the settling of religion, the introducing of civility, order and government amongst a barbarous and unsubdued people are acts of piety and glory and always worthy of a Christian prince to endeavour. And then he finished by saying, we are the people. By the time of James's ascension to the English throne, England had been at war with Spain for nearly 20 years. And there was a lot of fear and paranoia over Catholicism in England. And after the failed Spanish Armada of 1588, strict anti-Catholic penal laws were introduced in England. Everyone over the age of 16 was forced to attend an Anglican church every Sunday or they'd face a fine and... 
They were made to watch Heartbeat on a Sunday night before going to school on the Monday. It was the worst Sunday imaginable. Children had to be baptised in an Anglican ceremony before a month old and Catholic baptisms were banned. All weddings had to take place in Anglican churches. At death, the last rites were denied and people were arrested for owning rosary beads or Catholic prayer books. Catholic babies, they were baptised in secret. There were secret Catholic weddings and masses conducted in secret with many large stately homes in England having priest hides where priests could hide when the authorities came knocking and presumably also where children could, you know, hide from the priest. They would hide priests in the attic like Anne Frank, you know. Although obviously under no circumstances should you ever put a 13-year-old child in an attic with a priest. Hiding a priest could mean imprisonment or a fine and a priest caught conducting mass faced execution. Catholics, they were heavily persecuted under the reign of Elizabeth, but when James ascended to the English throne, England's Catholics were optimistic. James had demonstrated tolerance of Catholics in Scotland, and his mother was a martyred Catholic queen, Queen Anne as well. She was brought up Lutheran in Denmark, but when she refused to take the Anglican communion during her English coronation, there was rumours that she had secretly converted to Catholicism, adding yet more fuel to English Catholic optimism. But that optimism was quickly dashed. James's policy of toleration would simply not be accepted by his English subjects. They were too deep-set in their anti-Catholic prejudices. Any attempt by James to lift the Catholic penal laws could result in a rebellion against them. England was very prejudiced against Catholics, but thankfully they've come a long, long way since then. You know, now they are far more tolerant. Unless, of course, you're from the EU, you know, obviously. In 1604, James had little choice but to reenact the Catholic penal laws. His Catholic subjects felt betrayed, and the fallout was the most famous plot in history: the gunpowder treason plot. The gunpowder treason plot of 1605. Guy Fawkes was born in York in 1570. His father Edward was a lawyer and an Anglican. His mother Edith was a Catholic. Guy was raised Anglican, but when his father died, his mother remarried a Catholic and Guy converted. Many of Guy's school friends were Catholic, and some were involved in the gunpowder plot. John and Christopher Wright, for example, whose mother was imprisoned under the Catholic penal laws and whose sister was married to Thomas Percy, a Catholic neighbour of Guy Fawkes's, who was also involved in the gunpowder plot. Guy joined the army, and he fought the Spanish in the Netherlands, where he learnt how to handle gunpowder. Though no one seems to have taught him how not to get caught with it. Guy Fawkes became an expert sapper, using gunpowder to undermine the walls of towns under Spanish control. In the late 1590s, however, Guy left the English army and joined a Spanish regiment that contained English Catholics. A Spanish regiment full of English people. It must have been the Benidorm Regiment including its commander, Thomas Wintour, and Sir William Stanley. Stanley spotted Guy Fawkes' ability as a sapper and invited him and Wintour to Spain in 1598. Guy was now going by the name Guido Fox, which is the Spanish pronunciation of his name. Guido, by the way, is also what Prince Andrew is known as. Well, I mean, at least it sounds like Guido, you know. In Spain, Guy Fawkes and William Stanley met with King Philip III and petitioned him to help English Catholics. They wanted the Spanish king to send another invasion force to invade England. But unlike George W. Bush, King Philip was not going to help a country by invading them. So Fawkes and Stanley returned to England to try and bring about an English Catholic rebellion of their own. In May 1604, Guy Fawkes attended a meeting at the Duck and Drake Inn on the Strand in London. The meeting was called by 
why Robert Catsby and in attendance was Robert Wintour, guy's neighbour Thomas was supposed to attend but was in poor health, John Wright, Thomas Percy and Guy Fox. The five men swore an oath of secrecy on a prayer book before Catsby unveiled an audacious plan to blow up the Houses of Parliament on the opening day of Parliament the following February. Thomas Percy, he rented an apartment near Parliament House, which Guy Fox lived in under the name of John Johnson, posing as caretaker to Thomas Percy. Guy Fox was unknown in London, and Thomas Percy was a relative of the Earl of Northumberland, meaning he would have reason to be in London for the opening of Parliament, and as a member of the gentry, the English nobility, he was the only one who could actually afford to rent a single-bedroom apartment in central London. Catsby purchased 36 barrels of gunpowder, saying they were for the English army in the Low Countries, and the barrels were stored at his lodgings on the banks of the Thames. The opening of Parliament was moved from February to October because of a renewed outbreak of the plague. Closing the Parliament was deemed essential to dealing with the plague outbreak because it meant that the Parliament couldn't make any more catastrophic decisions that would cost thousands and thousands of lives. The play continued through the summer despite the king saying it was going to fuck off on the 21st of June. So the opening of Parliament was moved again from October to the 5th of November 1605. Over the summer, the conspirators rode the barrels across the Thames from Catsby's lodging to Guy Fox's cellar, where they were disguised under piles of coal and wood. Then in October, the barrels were taken, allegedly by means of a secret tunnel, from the cellar of Guy Fox's rented apartment to the storeroom underneath the House of Lords. News of the plot reached William Cecil after his friend Lord Mount Eagle was presented with an anonymous note delivered by a messenger during a dinner party urging him not to attend the opening day of Parliament. Mount Eagle immediately sent the letter to Cecil who took it to the King and Privy Council, many of whom had also heard rumours of a plot against Parliament and the King. On the day before the opening of Parliament, the Lord Chamberlain, Thomas Howard, Earl of Suffolk, walked the buildings of the Houses of Parliament and discovered Guy Fawkes' cellar, which was, of course, empty except for the piles of wood and coal that had been used to disguise the gunpowder barrels. Guy Fawkes gave the name John Johnson and the story about being the caretaker of Thomas Percy, which aroused suspicion since Thomas Percy was a known Catholic agitator And it was strange that a dark, empty basement in central London wasn't being used as an Airbnb. The king insisted a more thorough search be completed that evening, and Guy Fawkes, he was discovered, this time in the storeroom underneath the House of Lords with the 36 barrels of gunpowder. He was dressed for travel. Guy Fawkes had on one of those, like, travel pillow things round his neck, you know, and a cloak, hat, boots and spurs. He was dressed like Adamant about to get on an easy jet flight. The plan was for Fox to light the fuse and then escape by boat to Europe. But now that Fox was discovered, the rest of the conspirators fled in a panic. Guy Fox was taken to the tower, and at first he refused to give his real name or the name of his co-conspirators, but after days of torture, he gave up the names. Four were killed by the men sent to find them, the others were sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered. On the 31st of January 1606, Guy Fawkes asked the king to forgive him. He made, a, he made a sign of the cross and said a prayer before he was hanged. As he was hanged, his neck broke, meaning he was dead before he was drawn and quartered. Guy Fawkes, unlike myself, was not well hung. 
Anyway, the first official bonfire night took place the day after Guy Fawkes' arrest on the 5th of November 1605 and to this day many young people in Britain commemorate the gunpowder plot by underage drinking and firing fireworks at members of the public. In 1604, James convened a series of conferences at Hampden Court with the bishops of the Church of England and other selected religious leaders and scholars to debate theology and set out the religious foundations James intended to implement across his kingdoms. Everyone was invited to come together and discuss the Bible like a scripture union club. Everyone except the Presbyterians, who James still detested for questioning his royal authority. The Presbyterians were like the Meghan Markle of the religious groups. The first of these Hamden Court conferences took place on the 14th of January 1604. And the Hamden Court conference was a model of thoughtful compromise and consideration. James was praised for his knowledge of theology and his patience as a benign chairman. But the most significant outcome of the conference was the decision to create a new English translation of the Bible, the King James Bible, the most popular and widely read translation of the Bible ever made. There have been different variants of the Bible, right, but the King James variant turned out to be the one that was the most contagious, to put it in a 2021 context for you. A commission of 54 scholars began work on the translation in 1607. James himself translated the Psalms of David from uh, Latin into verse so you know if you're looking for something to do during the lockdown the commissioners they came together to translate something that was utter nonsense from latin into english it was like listening to an episode of uh, russell brand's podcast the king james bible was first published in 1611 and it was a triumph of english literature Events, plague and cost had prevented James from returning to Scotland every three years as he had promised when he left in 1603. He made his only return visit to Scotland in 1617. He rode north with a large entourage, arriving in Edinburgh in March 1617 to huge spontaneous rejoicing. At first there was great enthusiasm in Edinburgh uh, at James's returning, but then pretty quickly everyone stopped giving a fuck. It's like when, uh, when they took that yacht that the Queen used to kick about on up to Edinburgh. People seemed quite excited about it at first, and I mean now... I mean, honest to God, who could possibly give a fuck about the Queen's boat? They'll be selling Prince Philip's Range Rover as a tourist attraction next. James, he was moved by the reception he received, but the enthusiasm of his return, it wasn't shared by the Presbyterians. James, he introduced a series of religious improvements to the Scottish Kirk known as the Five Articles. These included kneeling to take communion, which... English worshippers did, but their Scottish counterparts didn't. Although we do do our Sam's doggy style, so that's one thing. It would now be bishops, not ministers, who would give First Communion, and the Kirk was forced by law to celebrate Christmas and Easter as religious festivals. Presbyterians, with their very literal interpretation of the Bible, they didn't celebrate Christmas or Easter since there's no mention of them in the Bible. That's how miserable we are in Scotland, right? The king had to pass a law to make us celebrate Christmas and Easter. He also passed a law that made it illegal to turn your lights out and pretend you're not home at Halloween. James installed a chamber organ, a choir and candles to the Holyrood Royal Chapel and it was all considered the thin wedge of popery for Presbyterians and the king's five articles they were rejected by a meeting of the General Assembly held in St Andrews after James had left Scotland in August 1617. A furious James declared in January 1618 through royal warrant that Christmas 
Good Friday, Easter Sunday would be public holidays. Now, several diehard ministers continued to refuse to put the five articles into practice, but eventually most ministers mustered in favour of them. James, he then banned further meetings of the General Assembly, and it it led many in Scotland to feel like they were being swallowed up by England, that Anglicanism was being imposed upon them, and it was to the Kirk where they turned for a sense of national identity. But, I mean... Trying to unify Scotland and England through religion was never going to work. They would have been better to use our shared passion for binge drinking. Scottish reaction to the five articles, it was the start of a protest movement that would explode under the reign of Charles I. The King's continued attempts to try and turn Scotland into England would end in rebellion. Well, I mean, actually, they'd have to wait as they were only allowed to rebel once in a generation. James wrote books on kingship which became bestsellers throughout Europe. One of his books he wrote to his son Charles. It's got a, it's got a Latin title that I've had about eight takes of trying to pronounce. and You're just going to have to Google it, all right? That's what I've settled on. Anyway, in this book, he outlines his belief in absolutism and the divine right of kings. And in it, he describes the king as being little god or God with little hands in the case of Trump, the king was put on the throne by God to rule over other men, which towards the end of his reign was about the only justification that Neil Lennon had left for remaining in the job. It was an ideology that James embodied entirely, and it put him on a collision course with Scottish Presbyterians, and it's something that his son Charles would embody as well and put him on an even greater collision course. In 1619, James's queen, Queen Anne, died and her death came just a few years after the death of James and Anne's eldest son and heir to the throne, Prince Henry. Henry died on the 6th of November 1612 and his death was a huge blow to James and Anne. Henry had just turned 18 and as, as, and as James's popularity began to wane, Henry's only increased. He was handsome, genial, charismatic, athletic. He moderated his drinking and language. He kept a swear box, the contents of of which he would give to the poor. He was the apple of the nation's eye and his death thrust the spotlight on his younger brother Charles or baby Charles as James referred to him. Charles was small, slim, a scholar, an artist but unable to inspire the popularity his brother managed so effortlessly. James was made Prince of Wales in 1616 at the age of 16 and he dedicated himself to being a good king but Charles lacked the kingship of his father or the charisma of his older brother and throughout his reign he would spectacularly undo the good work of his father. James's work would be spectacularly undone by a man totally unqualified for the position of leader. It's like when Donald Trump took over from Barack Obama. Towards the end of his reign, James worked less on his kingcraft and personal dignity. There was friction with the English Parliament, relations with Scotland were poor, and he constantly scandalised the court with his blatant favouritism of young men such as Robert Carr, whom James made Earl of Somerset, and George Villiers, who was made Duke of Buckingham. But listen, what's the point of being king if you can't have sex with whoever you want, regardless of their age? Yeah, but you're not king, Andrew. James's health was failing. He was an alcoholic with arthritis, gout, piles, liver failure, and he was missing all his teeth, which is all pretty standard stuff for a Scottish guy in his 50s, but I don't think that the English were that used to it. 
Despite his loss of dignity and his waning popularity, when James died of a stroke at the age of 59 on the 27th of, the 27th of March 1625, he was genuinely mourned by his subjects. He was given a lavish state funeral by his son Charles, but in Scotland the same sense of loss was not felt. England mourned his death, but in Scotland we couldn't give a fuck. James was like Margaret Thatcher. James had lost Scotland's respect and affection, and it was to the Kirk rather than the Crown that the Scots turned for a sense of national identity that was so sorely lacking after the union of the Crowns. And it was into this religious and political hotbed James's ill-equipped son Charles was thrust. So that brings us to the end of the podcast, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know that each week I try to pair what I've been talking about on the podcast with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to send someone who deserves it a bottle of that malt whiskey. It can be like a an NHS frontline worker, a patient parent, or just a thoroughly sound person. If you know someone who you think deserves a bottle of whiskey and it would be an amazing wee surprise for them, then you can nominate someone. I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. What I do is uh, each week I try to raise funds through my Buy Me A Coffee account. So basically you go on to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Montebank and you give me the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. If you were to meet me in real life and you were like, ah, Daniel, I really like your podcast, can I buy you a pint? Well, you can do that online. Go on to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Montebank and leave me like three, four pounds. It's massively appreciated. I don't keep the money. It all goes towards raise enough money to send deserving people a bottle of whiskey. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you might want to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. You can do that by going on to patreon.com forward slash Montebank and that way you can leave me the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer every month. It's massively appreciated. Uh, if you'd like to nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey, you can do so on my Buy Me and Coffee or Patreon accounts when you leave me a wee bit of money you can leave a comment um you can send me an email or you can follow me on social media at montebank scotland and just send me a dm or leave a comment on a post and basically i just choose someone at random that's how it works uh today's podcast i am going to i'm going to match with abuna haban uh and the reason i'm doing that is because it's the most gallic name that i could think of the most gallic whiskey i could think of and James would, pro- would probably piss him off, when, although he's an alcoholic, so he'd, he'd be a catch-22 for them, do you know what I mean? He'd want the bevy, but he wouldn't like the gallicness of it. Anyway, it's a delicious dram from Eilie, it's uh, it's one of the more kind of subtly peated Eilie malts, it's got a, a lovely kind of soft peatiness, it's got a, a floweriness and oiliness to it. It's a top-class dram, and um, you can nominate someone to receive that bottle, and they'll think that you're the soundest person in the world. So get in touch and let me know. Um, cool. I try to think what else I need to tell you is give me a wee follow on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the usuals at Montebank Scotland. Uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel at Montebank History of Scotland. I'm on YouTube. Please like the podcast. Please rate the podcast. Give it a review if you can. All this stuff helps massively get me up the rankings and keeps me ahead of Neil Oliver. So please, 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 if you do get a chance, do that. And uh, I don't think there's anything else that I need to tell you. So uh, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you all next time. Cheerio now. Bye-bye.